Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Dr Jonathan Bargett and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Gillian Bain. She is a consultant gastroenterologist working in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and has been working there since 2015. She has a specialist interest in inflammatory bowel disease and she is the training programme director for gastroenterology in the north of Scotland. Welcome Dr Bain. Thank you very much Johnny for asking me to speak today. So I guess I'd just like to start the questioning why we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease and if you could just tell our listeners why is this so important and why, why do you have an interest in this? I think it's important to realise that IBD is very common. It's currently got a prevalence of 1 in 125 people in the United Kingdom. And actually in Scotland, IBD prevalence is estimated to reach 1% by 2028. And in particular, with rising incidence rates of IBD in younger people. And obviously with IBD being a chronic disease, these patients should require lifelong care. And of relevance to this talk, during that life, they will likely present to acute medicine at some point during their lives. I've got an interest in IBD because a lot of the time we're looking after, as I mentioned, younger patients and you get a chance to really know your patients and see them progress over time and look after them over a number of years and get to know them really well. IBD patients can present to acute medicine and the acute medical take in a number of ways. Firstly, the patient can present being unwell with new symptoms in the absence of a prior diagnosis. They can also, in patients with known ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis, present to the acute take with an acute severe flare of their disease. They can also, in Crohn's disease, present with acute disease activity or complication of their Crohn's disease, but they can also present with adverse reactions to some of the immunosuppressive drugs that we use, and it's important to recognise what some of those side effects might be. And in the other instance, patients with IBD, because it's so common in terms of prevalence, can present to the acute take with other, other pathology, but the underlying diagnosis of IBD may need to be considered with whatever new pathology they're presenting with. That's a really useful introduction to this talk, Dr. Bain. And when I was asking my colleagues about what they wanted to know about IBD and how to manage patients at the front door in ANU who have IBD, they always were asking about what method we use to assess these patients in terms of their severity and, and how can they present. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Okay. So I think it's maybe helpful to think about a patient case in this situation. So let's consider a previously fit and well 25-year-old man who's admitted to the acute take with a new symptom of diarrhoea. So what should we ask this patient in this circumstance and what should we get from the history? So first of all, we want to know number of times they're passing a bowel motion in a day because increased frequency might be suggestive of worsening pathology. Also, we want to ask them specifically if they're having any nocturnal bowel motions. And if so, how many and how often? Is it just once every month or so? Or is it happening three or four times every single night? And that question is important because nocturnal bowel opening is something we see with an organic cause rather than a non-organic or functional cause. Additionally, we want to know with the, the diarrhea, is it bloody or is it non-bloody? Again, because the bloody, if it's bloody, then that would suggest that this patient may more likely have IBD than not. 
The Bristol stool chart is really helpful in this situation. Different patients mean different things by diarrhea or constipation. And so it's really, it can be really useful to actually show them the Bristol stool chart and get them to point to actually what their stool looks like. In addition, in someone with diarrhea, we want to know whether they've got any abdominal pain. And if so, where is that pain? And then we want to ask about other symptoms as well. So have they had any weight loss? And if so, over what period has that weight loss been? We also want to know whether they've got any extra intestinal manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. So we'd ask them about mouth ulcers, any rashes, any joint symptoms, or whether they've had any inflammation of their eyes. We also want to know whether they've got any family history of inflammatory bowel disease, because as we know, there's a genetic component to inflammatory bowel disease. And by no means everyone with inflammatory bowel disease has a relative with the same condition, but it just increases your likelihood that maybe this patient who's coming in with diarrhea, if they've got a family history, might have inflammatory bowel disease and a new diagnosis. Additionally, it can also be useful in certain patients to ask them if there's any history of receptive anal intercourse. Now, you might wonder why on earth are we asking this 25-year-old man about this? But it's important because um, in someone presenting with a distal colitis, so inflammation, for example, just in the rectum, then the differential diagnosis of that is an ulcerative colitis, but also certain STIs, certain sexually transmitted infections such as chlamydia and gonorrhea can cause inflammation of the rectum and obviously needs completely different management moving forward. And so it's important to ask about that as well. Additionally, we want to know whether the patient has any infectious contacts, any form of travel, any recent antibiotics or vomiting that might suggest that the diarrhea in this patient is perhaps due to an acute infective cause rather than a more chronic illness. And I think in this situation it's also also I think sometimes the difficulty being can be working out whether a patient might have IBD versus IBS. And in this situation I would recommend that we consider the Rome 4 criteria. So the Rome 4 criteria start with you have to have a patient with who's got abdominal pain and they need to have at least two of the following three features. So one, that the pain's related to defecation, and that might mean that the pain's better after defecation, or it might be that it's worse, but just related to in some manner. Two, that the abdominal pain should be related to an associated altered stool frequency, and that might be increased or decreased. Or three, that the abdominal pain is related to an altered stool form or appearance. So the Bristol stool chart here again can be really helpful. So we need abdominal pain plus two of these previous three features. And these criteria, the patient needs to have had for the last three months, with generally the symptom onset at least six months before that. NIBS bloating and abdominal dissension are quite common supportive symptoms of that diagnosis. And patients who've had chronic bowel symptoms and the presence of other functional disorders can reinforce our diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And it's important in patients with IBS to give them a positive diagnosis um, rather than what used to be ter you know, termed an exclusion diagnosis. So if they have these features, the Rome 4 criteria, in the absence of alarm features that we've mentioned before in the history, such as bleeding, um, frequent nocturnal symptoms, then be clear that you think the diagnosis of, as, is of IBS. And with IBS, generally the management is in primary care rather than in, in secondary care. So that's a really helpful introduction to how we can assess for the difference between the patient presenting with inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndromes and the room, the room four criteria, as you say. I, I guess one of the things that my colleagues would ask me about managing patients for this talk was 
how can we decide in how we need to give IV, IV steroids, intravenous methylprednisolone or hydrocortisone, compared to antibiotics in someone with a flare of their confirmed inflammatory bowel disease? What's your approach to this, Dr. Bain, and, and what's your advice on how we assess these patients in terms of their, their physiology and their investigations? So after the history, obviously, as you in turn usually comes examination. So that would be the next thing to do in such a patient. So we're looking at a new score, whether they're parexial, whether they're tachycardic. It's important, though, to recognise that even in patients with severe colitis, those parameters can be normal because often these patients are young, they've got good physiological reserve and their news can be normal. But that doesn't mean that they're not unwell. It's also important. The next step in examination would be obviously to examine their abdomen. Are they tender? If so, where, any mass or any fullness, and what are their bowel signs like? And as I briefly mentioned, it's important that patients with acute severe ulcerative colitis can be really sick, and they're not people that are suitable for ambulatory care or an urgent outpatient review. These patients often look well, they're self-caring, they often go off the ward, and again, this is because they're young with good reserve, and also the classical symptoms of peritonitis can be absent in these patients. And so the signs of sort of toxicity and them being unwell can often be really subtle, a slight tachycardia, a slight dip in their albumin. And at the moment, we've not really got any good biomarkers or predictive tool to identify this high-risk group. So all these patients need to be assessed um, sufficiently. In actual fact, NICE um, a few years ago now in 2015 termed acute severe ulcerative colitis as a life-threatening medical emergency and it's got really quite a high risk of mortality. Think about it, 2% risk of mortality. Um, although in later studies and in specialist centres, that's been reduced to less than 1%. But they do have a 30% risk of colectomy at admission. And so it's important we do recognise this. In terms of after we've done an examination, what's some of the investigations that we might want to do to help us decide you know, how we manage these patients? So simple blood tests we, we should do initially. So standard blood test, full blood count UNEs, a bone profile and a CRP and an abdominal x-ray, and also get them to fill out a stool chart or get the nurses to. I like to enable the patient to fill out their own stool chart. Often on a busy ward, it's really difficult for the nursing staff to keep on top of it. They're young patients generally, you know, they're able to do their own stool chart. Actually, they get bored in hospital, so, you know, it gives them something to do. And generally, it's more reliable than the nursing staff doing it. The next step would be to exclude infection. And in particular, a case we've discussed of a, a young 25-year-old who's coming in with new symptoms that could be due to infection or might be due to inflammatory bowel disease, we really need to send some stool cultures to exclude an infective cause. And a minimum of four is required. And that's because a minimum of four is needed to detect 90% of cases of C. diff. And it's really important because C. diff has a higher prevalence in our IBD patients and it's associated with an increased risk of colectomy and a higher mortality. In patients with new symptoms, such as the case we introduced, we would want the stool cultures back first before we would think about other measures, such as whether they need a sigmoidoscopy, whether we want to start steroids or looking at any other treatments. In someone, though, with known IBD, then if there's, unless there's a strong suspicion of infection, then it's okay to start steroids whilst we await those cultures coming back. That's, that's really useful to just get that initial overview. You were going to talk about other management, Dr. Bain. Yeah, so I guess we've talked about history and examination, some initial blood tests and stool tests. What other things should we do? So certain medications that we should look to stop if patients are on them. So in patients with um, these symptoms, we should be avoiding non-steroidals, opiates, 
loperamide and other antidiarrheals and any anticholinergics. And we should give them prophylactic daltaparin as well. And that's because patients with a flare of ulcerative colitis have said to be a three times increased risk of venous thromboembolism. And that's due to a variety of causes, including the fact that they've often got thrombocytosis and they may have been on steroids before in patients with known IBD. They've got hypercoagulable state. They're often a bit malnourished. They can be anemic and their mobility is reduced. All of those factors contribute to a higher incidence um, of uh, DVT and PE. So we'd want them to have prophylactic daltaparin. And if they're dehydrated or their electrolytes are abnormal as a consequence of their diarrhea then they should have IV fluids and those electrolytes replaced and next really the assessment of severity once you've done all that initial management you've got their observations you've got some of their blood tests back then how do we assess whether how severe um, this patient's disease is and really for this we should refer to the true love and wits criteria so these aren't new. In fact, they're developed back in the 1950s, but we still use them today and they're still really important to assess a patient's severity of colitis. So these criteria divide patients in, well, in, in terms of their disease severity into whether they've got mild disease, moderate, severe, or the term fulminant. And based on a number of features, but in simple terms, based on how frequent their stool opening is, what their observations are, particularly their temperature and their blood pressure, and certain blood parameters, including their haemoglobin and their CRP. And so we should be looking to, when patients come in and we have all that information, divide, you know, look at how severe their disease is and put them into that group. Part of that assessment, and in particular those who you think might have fulminant, one of the criteria that makes uh, fall into the fulminant category would be appearances on abdominal entry. And that takes us to really, you know, I often get asked by our junior medical staff, what are we looking for in an abdo entry? Are we just doing it because it's in the protocol? Or, you know, what are we looking for? So the main reason really for an abdominal entry is to exclude dilatation of the colon, particularly if a patient is complaining of abdominal pain or is tender on examination. But it can also help to predict the extent of any inflammation by us looking for mucosal edema or what we term thumbprinting. It can also be useful to assess whether a patient has proximal constipation. And that's really quite common in patients with distal disease. So if they've just got inflammation on their rectum, then it's really quite common for them to have constipation above that. And often in these patients, we need to treat not just the distal inflammation, but also the proximal constipation too. Other features we can see in an x-ray would be a featureless colon or also gaseous and distended small bowel loops, which might be suggestive of impending small bowel obstruction and a so-called lead pipe appearance to the colon as well. That's really useful, Dr. Bain. And I guess one of the things that, that leads me on to the, the next question would be, when, when do you get a CT scan and when are we calling our colorectal surgeons to have a look at our patient? So one of the things we look for on an x-ray, as I mentioned, is dilatation. So I think it's important to recognize what, you know, how dilated is, is significant because if it's very dilated with a megacolon, for example, then that would be one of the indications to call the surgeon and get a CT. So what's the definition of a toxic megacolon? So first of all, we can't define toxic megacolon just on x-ray alone. But if we're looking at the x-ray first of all, then we're looking at how dilated the colon is. And for it to be a megacolon, we're looking at the cecum being greater than nine centimetres or the transverse colon being greater than six centimetres. And if you've got either of those, plus a number of other features, including fever, tachycardia, high white cell count or anemia, or dehydration, electrolyte disturbance or hypertension, then that would that is what, adding in those features specific to the patient, is what then defines whether 
the patient has a toxic megacolon or not. And so in anyone with a megacolon, then they should be kept fasted now by mouth. And at that point, we should request an urgent CT scan and call the surgeons. The toxic megacolon said to have a mortality of about 8%. So it's really important to recognise this in our patients and to manage it appropriately, as I said, with a CT scan and calling the surgeon. But if patients don't have a megacolon, then other features can be worrying as well. So even in the absence of dilatation, a patient with significant tachycardia, a fever, a very elevated CRP, so you know more than 100 into the 200s or 300s, and those are worrying signs. And so even in the absence of a dilatation, those features are worrying. And so at that point, I would consider doing a CT and certainly be discussing with the surgeons. That's a really good overview of how we approach these patients when they come in um, through the AMU being acutely unwell. And what I, what I guess our listeners might want to hear about just a little bit about is, is there a role for scoping or doing a upper or lower, a lower GI endoscopy, I should say, in this situation? Or is that something that would be too high risk at this point? So first of all, as I mentioned, in someone with new symptoms, then as long as they're not too unwell and you've got time to wait, then it would be getting the stool cultures back first. And only if they are negative and they've still got ongoing symptoms, then speaking to your GI colleagues about the possibility of getting a flexible sigmoidoscopy for further assessment. In patients with known inflammatory bowel disease coming to the acute take with a flare, then the guidelines would suggest that they should have a flexible sigmoidoscopy within 72 hours, but ideally within 24 hours of admission. And that's for assessment, but also some biopsies, because particularly in people with IBD who've been on chronic immunosuppression and steroids, then they can develop CMV. And reactivation of that is common in, in these patients on immunosuppression. You know, that would be the time frame for thinking about flexible sigmoidoscopy in known patients with IBD coming into AMU. So nothing that needs done, you know, on the day of admission necessarily, but something to be considered following that. The other thing that you were asked about before is when to give steroids for these patients. So, you know, if we've assessed and there's no evidence of a megacolon and they're not at imminent risk, there's no perforation or anything on the abdominal film or any concern, if there's no suggestion of infection, then that's when you would start IV steroids. And if you're not sure, just discuss with the GI team on call. And it's important to recognise when you start IV steroids to co-prescribe patients calcium and vitamin D supplements as well to go alongside the steroids. But there isn't any role for routine antibiotics in these patients unless obviously they've come in with a perforation or an abscess, and in which case those patients should be referred to the surgeons. That's a really helpful guide just for our listeners. I wanted to touch on what we do once we've got them on their trial of their intravenous steroid and they've been in say 48 hours and just sort of thinking about what their predicted course of their disease might be. What's your approach to watching how they respond to treatment in terms of whether they need any additional medical therapy or whether we need to contact the surgeons to assess them for any uh, further procedure? Okay, so in general, these patients, once they've been admitted and on IV steroids, should be managed on a gastroenterology ward. And what we would do from there is... Uh, ongoing assessment really, daily blood tests, daily abdominal examination and obviously um, repeated observations. Once they've had three days of IV steroids then we need to assess the response to the steroid and that's because we need to see whether it's actually doing anything or not, whether they're improving or not. 
and whether they're a steroid non-responder or responder. And the measures we generally use with that would be, the criteria we would use would be a non-responder would be someone whose bowels are opening more than eight times after three days or whose bowels are opening more than four times and their CRP is greater than 45. In those patients, they're non-responders to steroids and they have an 85% risk of colectomy and they need their treatment escalated to something more than just steroids because the steroids aren't working. And that's it. in that stage, we would have a discussion with the patient about the various options for their ongoing treatment, be that either medical therapy with um, anti-TNF, rescue therapy or surgery. Actually, I usually have that discussion with this patient before three days so that it doesn't come to them as a shock at three days. But certainly there's no benefit of intravenous steroids greater than seven days and we should be assessing them and if they're not responding, going down a different route um, of treatment moving forward. We know that from previous studies that even in patients who get anti-TNF rescue therapy, around 30% don't respond and need surgery anyway. Although in a recent audit we've done in ERI, actually the incidence of needing surgery because of failure of anti-TNF was somewhat lower, about 15%. In terms of more longer term outcomes, even if patients get get out of, you know, they respond to steroids and they go home, then we know that around about a third, somewhere between 20 and 30% of patients with ulcerative colitis will ultimately require surgery in their lifetime. And that increases significantly in patients with Crohn's disease who are looking at a risk of surgery in their lifetime of approaching 70%. That's really quite striking in, in how the therapy that we have can change the trajectory for our patients. And I guess I'd just like to follow that up with a question about the biologics themselves sort of being and, and how they can influence the, the disease process and, and what, what biologic agents are available for our patients when they come in with their flare of their disease. So in someone naive to biologic therapy with acute severe disease, who's maybe a steroid non-responder, as we've discussed, then really the biologic that we'd use in that instance, the one with the highest degree of data behind it is infliximab because it's got a quicker mode of action. So infliximab being an anti-TNF agent. Generally, that's the only one we really use in the acute setting like that. We have obviously other biologics that we use, including the other anti-TNF adalimumab and other sort of newer biologics that we use more in the outpatient setting for patients with you know, stable sort of disease who are not got acute severe colitis would be two other ones called ustekinumab, which works in a different way. So the other two are anti-TNF medications, but ustekinumab is really an antibody to a subunit of the inflammatory cytokines interleukin 12 and 23, so works on different inflammatory pathways. And then we've also got vedolizumab, which is a gut-specific biologic that influences migration of leukocytes to the gut. Um, and it's got le- because it's gut-specific, it has less systemic side effects. And that's another that we tend to, that we're using in an outpatient setting generally, and also a sort of particular use for patients who have, you know, risk factors to other biologics, for example, previous cancers or repeated infections, such as, you know, pneumonias, then that's a good option for them as well. So I was going to ask about common side effects and things to be alert for in terms of the therapies that you've mentioned, such as immunosuppression and other risks of increased incidence of cancer. Was there anything that you'd like to comment on particular, Dr. Bain? So I think 
We often focus on the side effects of the strong immunosuppressants, the thiopurines, the biologics, we get concerned about that, and, and rightly so, but I think it's really important to remember the, the side effects of steroids, and it's often forgotten, but you know they cause a multitude of side effects, diabetes, cataracts, osteoporosis, they affect your mood, weight gain, obesity, real concern in our young female patients, they affect sleep. They cause dyspepsia, acne, a whole host of different side effects. We all use steroids for a lot of different um, reasons, including IBD, but often our side effects are forgotten. And in patients who have lots, you know, repeated flares, they often get put on repeated courses of steroids. And it's just, you know, we should be, our aim for our treatment is so that they're, they're well most of the time and they're not getting these repeated steroid courses because of the side effects. And we, we need to remember the side effects of steroids. In, in terms of other medications, then 5-ASAs are obviously a common group of medications used for ulcerative colitis, various so a variety of different preparations and different delivery uh, mechanisms for those. But common side effects to those would be nausea, vomiting and diarrhea, importantly, which can be a little bit frustrating because sometimes you don't know whether the diarrhea is due to their underlying disease or whether it's due to the drug. But other um, side effects would be things like headache or indigestion. And some patients get mild allergic reaction to 5-ASAs with a bit of a rash, an itch or a fever. And very rarely 5-ASAs can cause interstitial nephritis or a pulmonary fibrosis. So it's important to remember some of some of those side effects. In moving up the sort of inexpensive treatment, then we've got thiopurine, so azathioprine and mercaptopurine. And I might just mention briefly what the indications for stepping up to those this group of medications would be. So those patients who are intolerant of steroids or they've had more than two courses of steroids a year, again, minimising the steroid side effects, hopefully. Those who you try and reduce a course of prednisolone, but they can't get down to less than 15 milligrams a day. Or those that do quite well on steroids, but within six weeks of stopping, they're back with symptoms again. So those would be the indications for starting patients with IBD on a thiopurine. But they do cause adverse effects, and really quite commonly, about one in five patients gets adverse reactions and side effects to thiopurines most commonly. And particularly, firstly, after they start, in the first few weeks after they start the medication, they can often get flu-like symptoms. It's important to counsel our patients about that to almost expect these side effects, because if they know they're coming, usually they can get over it and they settle within a few weeks. So sort of fever or arthralgia symptoms. Patients can also get nausea and vomiting. It can, they can cause hair loss blood abnormalities, particularly with your full blood count, low white cell count, for example, and also deranged LTs in less than 5% of patients. One of the important side effects is pancreatitis. Again, less than 5%, but important to check anomalies if a patient on any of these drugs is admitted with pain or vomiting. And also, can't you mention cancer? So there is a risk of cancer with thiopurines, particularly non-melanoma skin cancers and lymphoma, where they're said to be a four times increased risk. What I often patients will get quite worried about, we mentioned cancer as a potential side effect to their treatment. You know, they want to be well from their IBD, but they don't want to get cancer. I explain to them generally that it is of low risk, but also that having uncontrolled colitis in their colon um, over years is in itself one of the risk factors for bowel cancer. And so often it is a risk benefit discussion. One of the other groups of medications we use is methotrexate. As, as we know, it, it has some quite significant side effects in terms of bone marrow suppression, and it's also teratogenic. So we wouldn't use it in, in any patient who was planning a family. But also it can cause pulmonary fibrosis or pneumonitis, nausea, vomiting and diarrhea again. But these side effects generally reduced by co-prescription of folic acid. 
on a once weekly basis and um, cancers again are one of the side effects of potential risks of methotrexate as well. Moving on to the anti-TNFs, the main side effects with them are, are skin, so psoriasis being a fairly common side effect in these patients, but also because of the systemic immunosuppression infections. And in particular, one of them that we worry is reactivation of TB. And all our patients before starting on an anti-TNF have a quantiferon in blood test performed to try and exclude latent TB. Also with anti-TNFs, they can cause worsening of heart failure. So they're really contraindicated in class three or four heart failure. And again, because of immunosuppressants, they come with an increased risk of cancer, including skin cancer and lymphomas. And specific to the anti-TNFs, and also come with a risk of demyelination, similar to an MS type picture. The two other biologics I mentioned earlier is tekinumab. So it's got very similar side effects to the anti-TNFs really. And vedolizumab, it's GI specific, as we mentioned before, so it's got less in the way of the systemic side effects, but often patients can complain of joint pain or headache with vedolizumab. So yeah, multitude of side effects, important to be aware of them for us before we counsel patients before starting, but also for patients on these medications who you might see coming into the acute take. That's a really good summary of the therapies that are available. And I guess we've covered quite a lot in the, the podcast, and I just would have wanted to uh, wrap things up now and just summarize what we've learned and discussed, Dr. Bain. And I guess the key things that have struck out for me would be the importance of that initial assessment, especially in the, in the AMU, but just stratifying our patient into, as you said, the true love and wits criteria and just assessing their severity and not rushing to steroids. Is that fair to say in terms of the initial management of a, of a suspected flare and just waiting for those stool cultures? Yeah, so I think the, as usual, it's back to the basics really and, you know, an adequate and thorough history and examination and initial blood tests really and assessment of their news and how then, as you said, ranking them in terms of the true love wits criteria in terms of the severity. I would say that's really the key and, and sorry, I'm going to and more, but also stool charts and stool cultures and getting an abdominal film. That really, that sort of, group of investigations and things would be the key things really to be considered. Steroids, yeah, I wouldn't, there's no major urgency. So for example, if you've got someone coming in at 8pm, you know, or overnight, and there's, there's no gastroenterologist on or available to ask, you know, as long as you've done all those initial things that we've mentioned, then, you know, it's entirely reasonable if you're not sure about whether to start steroids or not to wait to the following day and to seek advice. As long as you've done all those other things, then, you know, that, that would be the main things really. That's really helpful. And I hope our listeners are learning as much as I've learned uh, speaking with you, Dr. Bain. I'd just like to say thank you for your time. And before we finish, is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to highlight to listeners or uh, any other advice that you, you'd have for our colleagues in general medicine and the AMU? I guess something that's fairly topical would be some of the new drugs that particularly oncology are using that can cause a colitis picture very similar to IBD. So some of you may have already seen this, but there's a new group of medications called checkpoint inhibitors and you know they can cause quite a significant enterocolitis. Um, and so it's important to recognise that in patients coming into acute medicine that if they are on this, these groups of drugs, 
to think about the fact that they may have, it might not just be an infection that they're presenting with, they could well have a significant colitis. But management really, in terms of the acute medical take, is very similar to what we've just gone through with patients with FIBD. So same initial assessment really, and in terms of the same you know, steroids, and potentially some patients do need biologic treatment as well. So just something that's fairly topical and coming up and we're seeing it much more commonly lately as the oncologists use these drugs more frequently. Really helpful and I'm sure as you say that's something that we'll see more of. So thank you very much and for our listeners if you'd like to give feedback to Dr Bain and the trainees and members committee please feel free to mention uh, your, your thoughts on the Twitter and Instagram accounts and if you'd like to hear any more IBD podcasts, please do let us know. Once again, Dr. Bain, thank you very much for your time and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Johnny, for asking me to speak. If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you.